On episode 211 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn how to protect your mental health, key technical and tactical adjustments, and the importance of giving back with former WTA pro Vania King. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is Mirban, and I'm recording this intro right after the conclusion of the City Open. Really enjoyed going there. It was full capacity this time around. Uh, they actually didn't even have the tournament last year, but it was fantastic to just rejoin with the tennis community, and I saw a lot of people that I knew, in particular Will Hamilton from Fuzziella Balls and Scott Baxter from Player Court. Uh, it was great to hang out with them, and yeah, just a ton of um, former uh, peop- you know, tennis players that I used to play with, as well as current, and as one of my friends said seemed like I couldn't swing a dead cat without running into someone. I think that's the right saying, but I'm not sure I said it right. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, just really enjoyed the finals. And pretty much every day I was there uh, seven out of nine days, uh, including the two qualifying days. So definitely miss it. And it was almost like a routine, just uh, working and then going to the tournament. But anyways, uh, speaking of work, let's get to work on this interview that we have for today. And this one is with former WTA pro Vanya King. And we touch on a lot of different, very important areas, including uh, mental health and and how to train your mental game to have more success on and off the court. Uh, The biggest technical changes that Vanya uh, underwent, if that's the right word, throughout her career and her most impactful coaches and what they worked on as well as some strategic tips, and of course, Vanya's fantastic uh, way of giving back, which is Serving Up Hope, uh, which you all should definitely check out at servinguphope.org. So um, yeah, I think you'll really enjoy this episode. Obviously, I say that with extreme bias because I created this episode, but (laughs) uh, yeah. So without further ado, here is my interview with former WTA pro, Vanya King. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of the Tennis Files podcast. It's really an honor and a pleasure to have on Vanya King on the Tennis Files podcast. And as you heard on the intro, she has both an amazing tennis resume as well as an amazing charitable resume. So uh, Vanya, thanks so much for coming on to the show and glad to have you on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so I was reading up on you, obviously, to prepare for this. And I first want to ask you, have you been able to do much bird watching and or singing? (laughs) So during COVID, I stayed in Florida. Uh, I moved to Florida from SoCal when I was 19. And um, 
because I was playing on the tour, I never really got a lot of time to spend in Florida. And so during COVID, I actually stayed in Florida. My house is here and spent a lot of time, uh, more time than I'd ever had bird watching. Actually, uh, Florida is kind of a, a bird watching haven. Um, so yes, I'm kind of nerded out on bird watching here. I'd bike to, you know, a local pond or into the canal and, um, there's some spots that I like. And then in terms of singing, uh, I still sing sporadically. I actually discovered a few years ago that I have a, an, it, I had an injury. I fell actually one time when I was in the court and kind of chipped off a piece of bone out uh, around my ear canal. And so singing now is is a little bit painful because of just the way the vibrations are, but I still do love to sing and I do sing occasionally. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that part of it, but, um, I'm glad no, you still okay. enjoy it. And, and everything. you know, as so, you get older, you know, there's, there's more injuries and you just manage them and, um, it has not affected my quality of life. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. That's the most important thing. Well, I want to ask you, cause it's so interesting for me to, to find out how people get their start in tennis, especially uh, professional tennis players. So, um, how did you get your start playing tennis? So I'm the youngest of four. My brother, Philip, uh, is older than me by about seven and a half years. And he was naughty in school. And so when he was nine, his teacher told my parents that, you know, he didn't, he needed an outlet for his energy. So they recommended either a sport or uh, an instrument. And so he ended up choosing to play tennis and he also picked piano. So at that time, you know, he started playing at nine, which is a little bit late for tennis is um, kind of the average of those players that do well. Uh, but he got to, um, I mean, he was the number one junior in the U.S. when he was 17 and 18. He won Kalamazoo twice. So he was a really great player. He ended up going to school. He chose the college path. He went to Duke. And then my sisters and I have two twin sisters, uh, two sisters that are twins, and they're two years older than me. So the three of us kind of just followed my brother around um, when we were younger, especially in SoCal, you know, going to tournaments with him because, you know, our parents didn't have time to drop us off in other places. And we were always known as Philip King's little sisters. So uh, it was a point of pride when Philip started being known as Bonnie King's brother. Awesome. Well, we have uh, Philip to thank for being naughty in school. That sparked it <laughs> <Exactly>. all. So. <laughs> Yeah. Good job. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And, and so, uh, also very curious about just you know your junior career and all, and how you train because that's obviously very important and builds a foundation for everything. So, when you started training seriously, what was the training environment like for you? So, um, I was coached by my father until I was seventeen, and I would say back in the day when I was young, um, and you know, technology and science and knowledge has come a long way since I was training, but it was really more of a, you know, hours that you put on the court. It was kind of a make or break you style. And so um, I was out on the court, you know, at least four hours a day, um, whether I had school or not, you know, summers, I was probably out there for four to six hours a day out with my sisters, you know, it was just a lot of on-court time. Um, nowadays, you know, with the progression of science and um, the understanding 
understanding of how tennis, how the other aspects of tennis, such as, you know, fitness and nutrition and recovery affect you, um, you know, you still put in a, a large bulk of time, but some of it goes, a lot of it goes into these other aspects. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's kind of when I grew up, we just spent a lot of hours on the court. Very cool. Yeah, definitely. Uh, things have evolved, obviously. So, I, I mean, in looking back at that, you know, huge block of training, like, would you change it at all in terms of like, may, maybe like, oh, it'd be more efficient if I trained like more on the first four shots or something like that? I mean, do you think that would have helped? Uh, I think I had enough on court time. I think I had maybe too much on court time. Um, my dad actually didn't. So my dad was my coach, but he was not um, a tennis player himself. So given that kind of this unique circumstance where he was my coach, but didn't actually play tennis, you know, he had to do a lot of learning himself. So what he did was he took me to a lot of uh, great coaches in the SoCal area at the time, you know, there's, you know, SoCal is, has been known historically as a Mecca for American tennis. So, you know, I took lessons from Robert Landstorp who coached uh, Sharapova, Moschina, um, Tracy Austin. You know, I took lessons from Vantoff who coached Davenport, um, Brian Teacher who was, who won a slam. I think he was number one in doubles. Uh, Phil Dent, top 20, you know, coached his son Taylor and, and a few more people in the area. I mean, I was coached a little bit by Ray Ruffles, who I also worked with when I was 17, um, who was an amazing coach, coach the Woodies, was top 20 himself. So he, you know, took me to coaches around the area to learn from them and then tried to kind of implement his own style. Um, but given that, he, you know, he wasn't a player himself, I think there were some aspects that he didn't prioritize because he just didn't know. So, you know, definitely fitness has always been um, a weakness of mine. I didn't start doing fitness until I was 16, which is pretty late. You know, all my fitness was done on court. And so, you know, even like injury prevention, making sure that um, my body is strong enough to sustain what I'm doing on the court. You know, I didn't learn all these things until I was a bit older and then a little bit too late because, you know, your body just um, it takes time as a kid to adapt to the load that I was putting on it, you know, nutrition, you know, it was really just technical and tennis based. So looking back, I mean, through no fault of his own, and it's just the circumstances that we were in because we didn't have that knowledge. Um, all these other aspects of tennis did not really come into play as much. Yeah. I mean, your father did a great job and, and, you know, did a very important thing in seeking out the, the best possible coaches. And yeah, I mean, you turned out <laughs> great, obviously. So um, I was wondering in terms of your pro career, if you could travel back in time and then give your younger self advice um, when you first started on tour or well, what advice would you give your younger self? I don't know. Um, you know, I, I wish I could go back and tell my younger self that like, that everything would be okay because, you know, it's, it's a weird dynamic, um, in tennis, you know, especially if you're getting to the top, you start really young, you have to be professional and kind of adult, like very young and dealing, you know, with the teenage identity crisis. I mean, these are things that we faced while being professional players. So it was a very, you know, confusing time. So looking back, I mean, I was very, it was very high stress for me. I was very emotional. Um, I may not have 
you know, shown it on court, but uh, just kind of dealing, but I also have to say is just normal progress of growing up and, you know, kind of figuring out who you are as a person. So it's hard to say uh, because I look back and I wish that I was a little bit more self-aware. I wish I was a little bit more at peace, but at the same time, you know, being also excitable and in a way, you know, anxious and stressed because I wanted it really bad. You know, I had all these emotions coursing through me, but it also, you know, made me the player I was at that time too, you know? So there were days when I just felt totally invincible on the court. There was nothing I could do wrong. You know, I remember playing a doubles match and my partner wasn't playing so well. And I said, don't worry, just put one ball in the court. I'll do the rest. And I did, you know, as I got older, I'm like, no, I wouldn't be able to do that. You know, I don't know how I'm going to play today. You know, I can't guarantee that. But also at the same time, you know, I'd have that match and then I'd have a day where I'm just feeling terrible, you know, you know, couldn't really balance, let's say my, you know, personal and work life and, and things would really start to affect me. And then um, things I look back now weren't that big of a deal. You know, a lot of stress, I think that players still have just because we're in this bubble, you know, and um, I think looking from a spectator's point of view, sometimes we, they think that it's a glamorous life. Um, and it's not, it's like a really, it's a really, really tough life. It's very stressful. You know, you're constantly insecure because there's always more to do. You know, if you become complacent, there's someone behind you that's working, that's going to work harder, that's going to fight harder, you know, and it's, you have to be a hundred percent all the time and, and always a hundred percent, but a little bit insecure, which kind of affects your, your psyche as well, you know, to never be fully confident in yourself. Um, you know, if you win, you feel great. If you lose, you feel terrible, you know, there's always something to do. So, um, yeah, I mean, I wish I, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I think I wouldn't have been the player I was back then, but I definitely was not as grounded as I feel that I am now or more grounded than as I feel like I am now. So in terms of um, your, your mental game, uh, obviously extremely important. Uh, were there certain uh, routines or exercises or, or things that you did to, to work on that aspect of your game uh, over the years? From the mental side? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I saw several sports psychologists, um, also saw, you know, just regular counseling and therapy. Um, I think mental health is incredibly, incredibly important. It's just like physical health. If we go out and take care of our physical health, which a lot of people could use more of as, you know, we all could use a bit more of, we should just as much take care of our mental health. Um, and, you know, I did see sports psychologists. I think that, you know, my, my childhood, my dad, um, he was very hard on my siblings and I, um, you know, again, he was an immigrant. My parents were immigrants coming from Taiwan. He really wanted his children to be successful. So he was also very hard on us. Um, and, you know, really expected success from us as kids, you know, like we had to win, put a lot of pressure on us to win. So for example, I had fear when I get on the court, which is fear is a good short-term motivator, but long-term it creates dysfunction. And, um, you know, there's only so much fear someone can take before cracking and shutting down. And so as tennis is a long career, you know, it may have worked as a junior, it may have worked as well because um, at the junior level, you know, sometimes you just win matches by grinding and just fighting hard and putting the ball in the court. But at the pro level, that's not the case. You have to, 
you know, you have to step up and you have to take chances and, and be confident. And so, um, I think that there were some things that sports psychology could have helped, but also just the way, I know this is tennis related, but it was also just kind of the way that I learned how to respond to certain experiences that, you know, just kind of having regular therapy was really important for me as well. Um, and actually, I mean, if it is also really hard to find a good therapist in all aspects, it was also hard to find a good mental health therapist um, as it's hard to find a good coach, as it's hard to find a good physical therapist. Um, I did find a really great one a few years ago that's helped me a lot, um, but I would, yeah, totally recommend everybody to really value their mental health as they do their physical health. Yeah, hundred percent appreciate that. And, you know, through those, those, uh, I assume many sessions, uh, with those experts, was there a time where they said, Oh, do this exercise when you go home or that basically trying to find out if there's something that maybe the audience could practice, you know, uh, every day oh, or what, every so often. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, some of the things that I was taught from the mental side were taught by sports psychologists. And I have to say most of the things that I were taught, I was taught was by my coaches because they were players themselves. I mean, not my dad, but players that were out there or former players, you know, had their own strategies on dealing with pressure, um, dealing with challenges. So some of the things that my sports psychologists had worked on, um, visualization. So these things do have, uh, have been shown to work, you know, based upon research, but visualization, uh, breathing techniques. Um, so visualization could just be, you know, you're taking the time, obviously settling yourself down and really envisioning you playing successfully. That could be a type of visualization. There's also a type of kind of meditation visualization, which one of the therapists gave me, um, her name is Alexis Castori. Actually, she was, she's quite famous. She's worked with like Andy Murray. And, um, I have to say though, it was a little bit more from the meditation side, which I did struggle with because I had trouble focusing, but it was, you know, like envisioning a ball of light and then expanding. So it was more kind of like a holistic, like positivity standpoint. And then, you know, my coaches were incredibly impactful, you know, again, the things like breathing, creating a routine, um, you know, if you are out there and creating routine is incredibly important because, you know, you're trying to control all the aspects that you can control because there are aspects, a lot of aspects that you can't control. So, you know, making sure that if you're bouncing the ball, every time you bounce the ball, same amount of times, if you're going to take a deep breath. Okay. So for me, it was like three bounces, a deep breath. I decide where I'm going to serve and the next shot. And then away I go. Um, and making sure that as much as you can creating that routine under pressure, you know, different breathing types, um, like techniques and types of breathing also helps, you know, the deep breathing slows the heart rate down, um, a deep breath with a sharp exhale kind of enhances focus. And then in terms of the mental side of what you tell yourself, I mean, self-talk is incredibly important. You know, um, there has been a lot of research shown that if you talk to yourself negatively, it actually does manifest itself. Even if you don't think so, even if it's like, don't miss your body, your brain actually just focuses on the negative aspect of it. And even though it's like, okay, let's get this ball in. So trying to rephrase it to a very positive statement. Um, one of my coaches, Ray Ruffles talked to me about self-talk about, you know, encouraging myself. It's kind of strange because you're talking to yourself like you're in third person. So I'd say, okay, Vanya, you know, 
you've got a chance here. Let's see if we can take this chance, you know, talking to yourself in a very positive way um, and a very rational way. So trying to detach yourself from the emotions of it, because that's not something that can inf- like your emotions can't control the outcome. You know, even if you want it so bad, you can't guarantee that it'll happen. So trying to detach yourself from emotions, which is incredibly hard. Um, and it's something that you'll, you know, we all constantly work on, but, you know, trying to say, okay, this is what I can control. Okay. I'm going to, okay, I'm going to be super aggressive on this return. And then I'm going to go to the net and then using different metrics of success, you know, have I tried to, did I, did I execute my intention, um, rather than did I execute the shot, you know, to create success is really important as well. Uh, but at the same time, I'm sure there's a lot of techniques out there that I could have tried. Um, the mental side was something that I did struggle with, especially in singles. Um, I actually don't like playing in front of a lot of people. I don't like being in a, I'm kind of introverted in that way. I didn't like playing in front of a big crowd. So especially at Grand Slams, I struggled with that. But yeah, there's a few techniques that can be tried. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Yeah, such fascinating information. I really appreciate that. A lot of takeaways that the audience can can use for sure. And yeah, I did uh, hear you uh, speak on my friend Chris Suter's podcast, and you talked about several coaches. Um, so I, I was curious about, you know, maybe if you could speak to a couple uh, technical changes, because uh, that's obviously an area that takes a lot more time to implement in most cases than strategy and everything like that. So what were maybe a couple of the biggest technical changes that you made in your game? And then what was the process like for them? Um, so one of the biggest technical changes I made was uh, when I was 19, I moved to Florida and I started working with my coach that I worked with up till the end of my career, Tariq, Tariq Benabilis. And so when I was a kid, I had kind of the old school style forehand, which was, you know, a more Eastern grip, low take back, short take back, finishing straight forward, um, better when the balls were low, struggled when balls were high. And then Tariq changed my forehand to, um, you know, semi-Western, elbow up, you know, really creating a lot more topspin. That was a big change for me. I mean, I had a lot of changes as well in my serve, but I mean, to be honest, I had a ton of changes in my serve and none of them were super factual. Uh, yeah. Yeah. None of them were super successful because, you know, there was a period actually when I worked with Ray Ruffles when I was 17, 18, um, I would say that actually I had served the best that I did in my career with him. So I loved 
I mean, those were the two most impactful coaches, Ray and Tariq. Ray had a style which was very much all court, even though I was small, you know, he never put me in a box. I mean, both of them never put me in a box, which I really appreciated um, just as a, you know, I think that you have to play what suits your personality as your personality uh, manifests itself on court. So it's quite interesting. You know, I feel like there's some players that get pushed into playing in a way that doesn't suit their personality, which at the end of the day, you have to feel really comfortable with the person, like the person that you are on court. Um, And so both of them, you know, talked through it with me, you know, respected the way that I felt. I really liked the way that Ray had me um, very aggressive. As I said, you know, my serve was the best that it ever was during my career. He created a kick serve that was actually effective. I ended up switching to a slice second serve um, later in my career and, you know, serve and falling and slicing and mixing up high balls and angles and, um, you know, just being a very creative player, which is kind of how my personality is because I do get quite bored. Um, unfortunately I am small, so I did have to run a lot. So sometimes, you know, even when I was trying these things, it didn't look like I was being as creative. And then Tariq was more of, um, an aggressive baseliner style and, you know, utilizing the forehand on all aspects of the court, um, creating the forehand as a weapon to open the court and then go into the net to pick off shots. So I, I, really loved the forehand. I had a conversation with Ray about this, actually. I really loved the forehand that Tariq gave me because Ray said to me, oh, I didn't like that forehand. And I said, I mean, I'll disagree with you, Ray. I think that there was a lot of upside to it. You know, nowadays players do play higher and heavier. I was just getting a lot more balls up above my shoulders and I'm short. Um, So I think that that forehand was really effective. I do wish that I was a bit more of an all-quarter. You know, I was able to maintain that aggressiveness of, you know, taking advantage of um, an open court and coming and picking off volleys much more so than I did later in my career, Um, you know, because I would say that I was a creative player, but, you know, I think I I still had that um, upbringing in me of my dad saying, you got to win. So, you know, being a little bit conservative at times, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's no, for anybody listening, there's no perfect way to play, you know, it kind of depends on your strengths and weaknesses. You're never going to feel perfect with every single shot of your technique. You know, there's always going to be one or two shots that you're like, eh, those are the ones that I struggle with most of the time. You know, I knew that my serve was that, um, and that I knew kind of, okay, when I do well, like these are some of the things that I think about, you know, if I didn't play for a while, my forehand would go kind of back to that old school forehand. So I'd have to really work hard on getting my elbow up again. And, so yeah, there's shots that you will just kind of gravitate towards and become more natural. And then there, there will be shots that, that you struggle a bit more with. And just everybody is like that. Yeah. I wish that I could be that player that every shot felt technically really sound, but that wasn't the case. Mm, uh, great stuff, Fania. And, you know, in, in terms of um, double strategy, we have obviously a ton of people playing uh, doubles here, especially in USCA leagues. Um, Curious if if you can give us a, a couple basic double strategies that that we can go and implement on the court that that you found successful and you think are also transferable to uh, to amateur level. Um, well, that one is not very simple in that because double strategy 
has to do with what you are able to do, what you are able to do as a team. So even if you have some weaknesses or strengths, you know, your partner might be able to cover those for you. It also depends on your opponent, you know, how they play, you know, keeping that in mind. So it's not like one size fits all. Um, I mean, I would just really recommend players to scout their opponents as much as they can. The more that you can understand yourself as a player and understand your partner as a player, how you guys work well together, and then scouting your opponents. So understanding them as players, you know, what strengths and weaknesses that they have. And so that's, you know, if you can see footage, I mean, I know that's harder at the recreational level or ask around. And if not, you know, in the warmup, give your opponent a bunch of different shots, check out their forehand, check out their backhand, give them a low one, a high one, a slice, a topspin at a fast one, you know, at the net, which side is weaker, you know, especially for women, if they have one hand backhand volleys, it's always a little bit weak, you know, just in terms of strength. Um, most women slice their serves. It's just kind of a natural swing. Um, so just trying to see those patterns. I mean, one thing that I think would, again, so I, it's hard to talk about strategy when a lot has to do with what players are capable of and how you're trying to exploit your opponent's strengths and weaknesses. Because, I mean, you could have, you know, an amazing serve and, you know, and I would say, okay, serve and poach. But if someone has a great down the line return, then I, that would not be the right play, you know? So I'd say, again, understanding yourself as much as possible, what you do well, what you don't do well. I would say definitely um, you need to have at least two shots, you know, for example, like if you're playing at any given moment that you can execute two different shots that neutralizes your opponents. So if you are returning and you're the net person in front of your opponent is poaching a lot, you need to be able to get the ball away from them. So whether that's down the line or a lob, or I mean, down the line or a lob would be ideal you know, if, if you're really struggling that day, your partner can go back and just give you more space, but it still doesn't take away that net person. So, or you're able to really pull that ball cross court, you know, so two different shots to neutralize the opponents is important. Um, you know, if it's a serve and they're really, you know, your opponent is like wailing on a forehand return, you need to be able to get that away from them, you know, at least have one more shot, obviously the more shots, the better, but at least one shot to get it away from, you know, an aspect that you're not being successful in. Um, and then the last thing I would say is just shot selection. Court positioning is important, but it's also, it's hard to describe now. And then shot selection is really important. I think a lot of players at the recreational level um, overuse the middle. Everyone covers middle and mm -hmm. really using those alleys is important. I know it gets kind of scary because the alleys are close to being out, but if you practice it, if you practice working into those alleys and getting those angles, um, it'll, it'll definitely get better and it'll be a shot that you become more and more comfortable with. Thanks for that, Vanya. So in terms of what the, the last thing you mentioned, um, would you still recommend like the middle as being a go-to, but then just adding the, the alley, um, shots or like, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah I guess. so, I mean, like I said about the two shots, having a two options, you can start going through the middle, but you have to have that other option because at mm -hmm. the end of the day, better players will cover middle. They'll have better reflexes, you know, a better player. Um, if you're poaching will, if they're at, you know, the, the net person across from you will then move into the middle, knowing that if you're poaching, you'll probably go through the middle. So then, you know, 
the better players get, um, the more options you need. I mean, if you have a shot that is so incredibly good that you can just blast through players, I mean, that's also a potential. Um, very few people have, I mean, I can't say very few people have that, but as you get better, you know, if somebody is there, there, you always give them that extra chance to get the ball back, you know? And so, yeah, I guess it goes back to that having two options. So going through the middle to start with, you know, no need to take a risk if you don't, unless you know them that they're really good, but no need to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, but if that's not working, being able to angle those shots. Got it. Thanks, Vanya. And so one more technical question. Um, this is in regards to the second serve. And so when I listened to a couple of podcasts on one of them, you described the, the kick serve drill, which you kind of mentioned. And so I was wondering if you could just describe that for the audience, uh, as well as just any other tips that you might have for people struggling with their uh, kick serve or second serve. Sure. Well, I'll admit that I didn't have, except for that one year that I was with Ray, I didn't have a great kick serve. Uh, a lot of it does have to do with upper body strength. You have to be strong upper body, you know, the ball, the toss has to be to the left. So something like 10 o'clock, you do have to arch your back. So it is a lot of load on your body, but in regards to that specific drill, um, it's fairly simple. You're just sitting on the ground, probably at the doubles, um, on the ad side at the doubles spot. And, um, you know, it just isolates it. One forces you to really hit up on the ball and then it isolates the upper body. So yeah, it's just sitting down at the doubles where you would stand on the doubles position on the ad side and kicking it out into the ad court. Gotcha. Yeah. And I, I think when you, when I heard you mention it, you said you also had like a really shallow target on that ad side as well. Yeah. I mean, that's where, um, so it was actually Ray's drill and that's where he would give me a target. But, um, you know, to be honest, I think at the recreational level, that might be too difficult. So just starting with kicking it into that box, obviously you're trying to kick it away from somebody's backhand. So if you can envision someone stretching out onto their backhand, I think that'll be enough. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I've done that variation. Um, and it's, it's really effective. So thanks for mentioning that. So I obviously do want to, um, talk about serving up hope and I, and everybody should check out serving Um, but Vanya, what inspired you to, uh, create the organization. And I, I did see actually that you got a master's degree in nonprofit management. So maybe that has something to do with it, but I, what inspired you to, to create that organization? So it was a journey, you know, I, I was injured, um, for the better part of the last six years before I retired this year. So it gave me some time to think about what I'd like to transition to, you know, what that, what ask, what things that I might be passionate about. Cause um, although tennis, you know, it's actually very taxing mentally and physically. I probably didn't want to go into something that was as physically demanding, but wanted to be really passionate about something that I went into um, just like I was about tennis. And I've always, um, I've always loved giving back. I think that, I think it stems from, you know, when I was a kid uh, feeling inequity and feeling the unfairness of inequity, both you know, because I felt it firsthand being a minority, you know, being kind of the child of immigrants. I did grow up in SoCal, which was pretty diverse, but, you know, definitely faced discrimination, um, 
being a minority and being female and being both, you know, being kind of like a double minority. And then I think that really impacted me as I got older that, you know, the unfairness of that and also seeing that other, you know, other people had it worse. You know, there's, there's plenty of people in the world that had less opportunity than I did. Um, I was actually, I mean, I was lucky enough to have parents that could afford to invest in me and, and I was lucky enough to be successful. I mean, obviously I worked hard for it, but most people don't have the opportunity. And so I think that kind of was my mindset or that is my mindset. You know, when I look at um, my charity and it was formed, well, one, you know, obviously because I love tennis and it's given me so much. I mean, I, I love hated it for a long time, but you know, if you hate something, you love it <laughs> because, you know, the intensity of emotion, but, um, you know, so I started serving a Pope two years ago. I mean, I got, I, I knew I wanted to give back. I knew I wanted to address inequity and I wanted to work with kids because, um, you know, so cliche, but kids are the future. You know, if you want kind of generational change, you got to start at the, at, you know, the younger generation and also kids are the most vulnerable. So, you know, the ones that suffer the most that don't have the resources to protect themselves are, are typically kids. Um, so I definitely wanted to work with kids. I love working with kids um, and bringing the aspect of tennis. And then I started it in Uganda, um, actually got connected there because of my love of wildlife. So that's actually kind of how I first went there, but then I got there and realized, oh my gosh, you know, there's such a disparity between those with opportunity and those without, you know, even more so than any place I've been in the world. And, you know, I've had the luxury to be able to travel to quite a few places. And it just really resonated with me that such a, so little over there goes such a long way. You know, these are kids that don't have running water. They don't have electricity. So even things like, you know, having a faucet is something that is so incredible for them, which actually don't have, or, you know, a pair of shoes or, uh, being able to, being able to play, um, is a luxury that they don't have, you know, and, and all the benefits that we take for granted of just even having the luxury, the luxury to go and play and, you know, develop self-esteem and socialize with other kids and, and then all the other numerous benefits that sport brings to somebody's life. So, um, that was, you know, the, the reasoning behind that, um, we implemented the program actually last year. Uh, we had a pilot in 2019 um, where we worked with over 300 kids for about a week uh, on the size of one tennis court. And it was, you know, organized chaos of that many kids. And I worked with a, I partnered with a legal aid NGO um, at that time. So half of the kids were playing tennis and then half of them were doing you know, legal aid training. And when we say legal aid training, it's things that, again, we take for granted. It's, you know, things like, okay, is it legal for, um, you know, your parents to abuse you? Or is it legal, you know, at what extent? Or is it um, legal for a girl to be married off at 12 years old? Or, you know, things like this that we don't even think about, you know? And um, so I recognized one, the value of education and play through sport, but also the value of, you know, just education, foundational education itself. So we've actually implemented now. Um, so I just went to Uganda, just got back, implemented a STEM program at our, our program there. So now we have our tennis program, which runs um, four to five times a week, depending on 
their school schedule. And then we also have twice a week, a STEM program, uh, which they also, you know, they get kind of in-person teaching of mathematics. And then we have um, also, you know, digital learning for them as well in STEM application. That's amazing. And you're also, I think I, I heard that you, you're even providing them with, with food as well. And, and that they usually only get like one meal a day, which is, I mean, it's really tough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say on average, the kids probably might get one meal a day. Um, and it, it was definitely a learning process for me, you know, talking about taking things for granted, I just assumed that they were eating enough, you know, they would come to the program and I would, you know, work them hard, you know, because it's a tennis program and I want them to get better. And I mean, even, you know, this past year, these are kids that just picked up a racket late last year and now are, you know, playing with that semi-Western forehand, ripping forehands cross court down the line. Um, you know, they, they can play. I mean, they have improved so much. I mean, I would, I think it probably took me three years to get to the level that they are at now within, you know, eight months. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're not a, we're not a food aid or medical aid organization, but, you know, we realized that these are, um, resources that we needed to provide for the kids because they just don't have those resources. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing what you all are doing and how has doing something like this impacted your life? Well, I mean, it's definitely very fulfilling and it's a lot of work, um, you know, things there. Uh, so we actually we do have a program as well. I mean, that we support in Santiago, Chile. Um, it's actually uh, it started as the foundation of a former tennis player named Chilean, former Chilean tennis player named Hans Podlipnik, who I knew on tour, but we just, you know, never really connected um, until after we both kind of stopped playing and he actually went to Uganda. So, you know, made that connection after he went to Uganda. And uh, so we actually support that program there. So, and then we started a program actually a few weeks ago in LA, we have a partner with the YMCA Metropolitan LA, and we started our first domestic program there. I grew up in SoCal, so that's where my heart is. Um, and, you know, there is also need in the US and would love to grow the program here as well. Uh, you know, just providing access, providing opportunities as much as we can through tennis. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just definitely been fulfilling. Um, I, it has been challenging, but in a way, you know, if it wasn't challenging, then I feel like we wouldn't be probably getting things done if it wasn't challenging, because, you know, if it wasn't challenging, then probably whatever is, whatever is being given exists already, but because it doesn't exist, you know, that's why we're facing these challenges. Cause we're trying to, as our goal is to continue to you know, push that baseline, push that ceiling, um, you know, further and further. So our goal isn't to create Grand Slam champions, although we'd love that. But, you know, given the really extreme lack of resources that a lot of um, the kids face, you know, our goal is to just, you know, little by little, just keep pushing the barrier a little bit further to give them more opportunities. Mm, that's that's just amazing. Uh, big, big kudos to you and the team. Uh, I, I know we've got to wrap up um, pretty soon, but um, how can people find out more about Serving Up Hope and how can they help out as well? Yeah. So um, as you mentioned before, if you guys would check out our website for more information, servinguphope.org. We also have a pretty active um, social media 
platform on Instagram and Facebook. So you can also check out updates there. Um, you know, any donations are incredibly appreciated. Um, you know, there's a lot of organizations out there that, you know, are kind of middlemen, you know, the big organizations, especially, and you don't really know where that your money is going or your donations are going, but I am very invested in this. And, you know, we have our team directly on the ground. Um, you know, we get constant feedback. I'm there twice a year for, you know, a couple months a year. Um, so you know that your donations are going directly to where they should be. And we are a small organization. So every little bit helps, um, you know, even if that's a buck or five bucks, you know, um, on our, all of our platforms, you have an option to donate. So really any little thing helps, you know, five bucks is, um, you know, probably a week's worth of, of programming for a kid in Uganda. So uh, maybe a little more than that, maybe 10 bucks, but you know, it, a little goes a long way. Um, and then we also accept donations uh, of equipment. So tennis equipment donations, rackets, shoes, um, especially kid sizes. Um, and because of our STEM program, you know, if anyone has any old laptops or tablets lying around that are in working order, but you know, you've upgraded and you just kind of left them lying around. We would love to take those as well. And, you know, if, if anything, just maybe keep in touch with us, um, follow us on social media, um, check in with us. We'd love to, to chat. And um, in terms of volunteering, you know, there's always that option, that very committed option of going to Uganda or going to Chile, which can be facilitated. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, you know, reaching out to us since we are a small organization, you know, we would appreciate any help that we could get. We have a program on the ground in LA. If anybody wants to come out and volunteer for that, um, you know, they can always send us a message. And I mean, actually I'm the one who's responding to most of the messages. So you probably get me uh, <laughs> responding yeah. back. Um, and then, you know, internally, you know, again, cause we're small, um, we could use assistance in various items as well. That's amazing. Yes, I would highly appreciate very much if everybody would um, would donate in some form or fashion. And we'll have the uh, the links, uh, servingofhope.org and, and the socials as well uh, on the show notes page. So you can just check that out. So, Vanya, last quick question that I always ask is, what is one key tip that you could give our audience to help them improve their tennis games? Ooh, um, what level are we talking about? Oh yes, great question. So um between 30 to 50. Oh, that's a broad range. Um, <laughs> um <laughs> that's that's hard. Um well, I mean we're we're talking about the 30 range. You know, I think foundations are really really important, mm -hmm. especially if players started playing later in life, which is is totally fine and incredible. You know, it's a social sport, but I do find that a lot of players kind of just starting as adults don't get the technical aspects that they need to, you know, so um, definitely there's for even example, for an example, you know, using the continental grip on the volleys, you're using the continental grip on every shot, except the forehand is not something that a lot of players use, you know, at the recreational level. So definitely, you know, if, the foundational technical aspects have to be there for you to um, kind of unlock the potential because if you don't have the right technical foundation, um, it will definitely inhibit you. I mean, I don't see players getting really past 4.045 if you know they have got the, the wrong technique. 
Agreed. Agreed. Thanks so much, Vanya. Um, thanks a lot for your time. And, you know, just again, really appreciate everything you're doing for uh, the communities, uh, you know, tennis and otherwise. So um, keep up the great work. And again, everybody check out servinguphope.org and yeah. <laughs> uh, hope to talk to you again soon and all the best. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. I really hope you enjoyed my interview with Vanya King and Vanya, shout out to you. Thanks a lot for coming on to the show. Really enjoyed speaking with you and hope to have you on again sometime in the near future. And again, definitely check out servinguphope.org and I have the link in the show notes, uh, which you can find in your app or at tennisfiles.com slash podcast and just click on that episode, the blog post. So, um, yeah, that is pretty much it for today. Although I do want to leave you with a quote as I often do at the end of the show. And this one is by Millard Fuller. And Millard said, it is easier to act yourself into a new way of thinking than it is to think yourself into a new way of acting. Very insightful there. Oh, and I would definitely really appreciate it if you would subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast if you aren't already. And you can do that by hitting the big juicy subscribe button on the podcast app of your choice and leave a review if you so choose five star only just kidding uh whatever you think is worthy and appropriate for the show all right well that's it for this week but we have some fantastic episodes coming up for you again extreme bias in that statement but i think they will be very enjoyable for you so thanks so much for listening and for all the support and keep improving your tennis game just a little bit each day and you will see huge growth long-term. So keep at it. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. This is Mirban signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.